in the New Testament in the book of Mark, chapter 10. If you would turn there with me, if you have your Bibles, the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Now, Mark was what is called the evangelist of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he is writing in the 10th chapter. And I want to read beginning with verse 17. I know you've been seated a while, but I always worry about when you get too comfortable. I'd like to have you stand for the reading of God's word to get you alert for what I was going to follow. Mark chapter 10, break down to verse 17. And I want to read this. It's a very interesting story. In fact, there's so much to glean from it. I want to share just a little this evening. Verse 17, when Jesus was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There's none good but one, that's God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. And then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. That's very pivotal. Jesus, beholding him, loved him. And he said to him, One thing thou lackest. Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Father, you know our needs tonight, and you know what you have laid on our own heart to deliver in this service, and we are here to receive from your hand. We know that without you, you said in your word, we could do nothing. But in turn, you said all things are possible in Christ. So we are pleading that you have your freedom in our midst, speak through your word, Breathe upon it tonight, and may we receive life from it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to really, and I normally don't give my, the titles to my sermons or messages, whatever you call them. I keep them only for my own cataloging purposes, but I'm going to give it to you tonight. I want to talk to you about this matter of turning from the truth. Turning from the truth. Probably there's never been a time when truth has been handled so recklessly as in this day that you and I find ourselves from the highest echelons of our government, even in the news media, truth for some reason seems to be at a premium today. I'm reminded in Isaiah, he said, truth has stumbled in the public square and honesty can find no entrance. I've often thought in recent days that perhaps that's very valid for the day in which you and I live. One poet said, truth crushed to the earth shall rise again. The eternal years of God are hers. So truth will always abound. I'm speaking this evening about the truth as it is in Christ. The truth as it is in Christ. In the second Thessalonian letter, about the second chapter, Paul writing said that we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. For God has chosen you to salvation. And by the way, that's the salvation of heaven. You know, when we're born again, we have free salvation. When we're cleansed, we have full salvation. One day we'll have final salvation. And he's speaking about the 
final salvation. He's chosen you to final salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. In other words, our attitude toward the truth as it is in Christ will ultimately determine our immortal soul's destiny. The passage that I just read here in the Gospel of Mark reveals the consequences of one who turns away from the truth. And I would caution all of us to be very sensitive to what God speaks to our hearts as far as the truth is concerned. Jesus is here interviewing this rich young ruler. By the way, this incident is recorded also in the Gospel of Matthew in the 19th chapter and the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. It begins with a very burning and vital question that I think all of us should be sensitive to when he asks the question, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And consequently, when he asks the question, Jesus responded to it. Now always remember, God always responds to our motives and with our motives. The interesting thing about Jesus, I don't know why anybody would try to play games with Christ because if you read the second chapter of the Gospel of John, it says he knew all men and know what's in man. He sees not only our words and sees our actions, he knows the motives behind them. And he always responds to us with our motives. And this young man came and he could see the motive was not what it should be. This young man had youth on his side, he had health on his side, he had a measure of morality on his side. He had wealth on his side. Luke, in his account, calls him a ruler or a young ruler, which uh, means that he had a knowledge of the law. The ruler in that day were interpreters of the law. And so Jesus takes this so-called young lawyer, and if you notice, he rehearses the commandments to him. And he said, well, what about all the commandments? You know them, and then he rehearsed them. Now, it's interesting to me took me a while to grasp this, but it's interesting to me that he only lists the commandments that are functioning on a horizontal level. In other words, he only is speaking, giving him the commandments that has response from man to man. But he does not give the one that has a vertical response or man to God. Because I think Jesus knew that this young man's love for self and for wealth had already violated the first commandment, which is, thou shalt have no other gods before you. Jesus knew it, and he looked at him, and he said, well, young man, one thing you lack. Listen to the statement. He said, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, give to the poor, thou shalt have treasure in heaven, take up your cross and follow me. It's interesting now, he's not asking all of us to do that. He's only asking those of whom that has become their God. You see, he was not in, interested in making God preeminent in his life. He had another God, and that God obviously, as far as Jesus knew, was this thing called wealth. And Jesus put his finger on the very thing that he had uh, made his God. By the way, whatever usurps God in your life becomes the God to you. And here this young man would not respond to what he was saying, and so the interview concluded with an insight of self-revelation too demanding for this young man to embrace. And so he reached a decision and he departed. When he departed, he was very sad, but at the same time, he was still unsaved because he just turned and walked away from the personality of truth. Jesus is the very personage 
of truth. If you remember, we're in this Easter season. If you remember, it was the custom of the day to, cruci- to uh, release a political prisoner, and Pilate, the governor of the land, uh, had two prisoners that he had before the people. One, of course, was Barabbas, the murderer, and Jesus, and he released one of them, but he didn't release it. He asked, which of these should I release? And the crowd together said, crucify Christ, but release the murderer to us, release Barabbas. But Pilate walks up and he looks at Jesus and he asks the question, what is truth? But the interesting thing is he was asking the question, but he didn't want to hear the answer. It said he turned and walked away. They released Barabbas and they crucified Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it? the very person of truth standing before him and the audacity that he had to look him in the face and ask the question, what is truth? Now, there's a difference between fact and truth. You wouldn't think so. If a thing is factual, you would assume it's truthful. Or if it's true, it ought to be factual. Well, the difference really, fact is very cold, very calculating, very disassociated with life. But truth, quite the contrary, is very warm and is very life-given and always changes the one who receives it into a holier person. And so you want to ask the question, when does a fact become a life-giving truth? When does fact become a life-giving truth? It's at the point where obedience begins. It's not until we have the facts and respond in obedience to the truth of those facts that all of a sudden the saving work of God takes place. I reminded over in Romans chapter 1 when Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Whatever the gospel is, glad tidings, good news, whatever it means to you, it's sequel to what truth is. Remember this gospel, this Bible, is not a myth or a fantasy or a hypothesis or a theory or a guess. It's a declaration of truth. Declaration of truth because he tells us it was spoken of as the gospel of God. In other words, this truth had its origin in the very heart of God himself. And the copy of the good news was not written by medieval theologians. It was not pronounced by the modern journalist wizards of our day. It had its origin in the eternal counsels of God. It's a declaration of truth, but it's also a declaration of revealed truths. Soon after school, I was a worked. In fact, my plans were to, was to be an engineer, and and I'd started on that scope, but then God changed my mind and and I came the way he wanted me to go, but we, uh, I was a layout inspector in a certain company, and uh, we had a very fine tolerance of a 10 thousandths of an inch. That means whatever the product was, it could not exceed more than a 10 thousandths of an inch or be less than a 10 thousandths of an inch. It, it was a basic truth. All In every realm of life, man endeavors to arrive at basic truth. That's not only true in the secular world, it's true in the spiritual world because the gospel contains all truth that is basic to the spiritual welfare of you and me. So it's a declaration of basic truth. It's also a declaration of welcome truth. 
you know, that it's a, there's a danger to sit under the sound of truth and not respond in obedience to that truth. Uh, truth resisted loses its power over the mind of the one that does the resisting. And it isn't long until you continue to resist the truth, your power to resist it becomes stronger than the truth itself, and you can sit under the most pungent truth and never be moved. And so I say to you, it's a welcome truth. That's why he says we are to hunger and thirst after the truth of God. It brings hope to the hopeless. It'll bring freedom to the captive. And to bring forgiveness to the condemned and purity to the morally defiled. But it's not only a declaration, it's also a dynamic. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the dynamic or the power of God unto salvation. Consequently, there's something intrinsic in the word of God that enables us to generate faith. I was absolutely ignorant before I ever come to know Christ, and yet God knew my dilemma. He knew my ignorance. He knew everything about me. And as I sat only three times listening to the word of the gospel preached to me, all of a sudden faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That word began to generate faith in me, and I, in response to the word, was able to receive the power of this gospel in a literal sense in my own heart and life because I come to the conclusion this truth or this gospel is not only a declaration, is not only a dynamic, it's a demand. The demand is, except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Now, all that's basic, and you've heard that over and over, and I worry sometimes we hear more than we respond. But what does that have to do with this young man? Well, this young man was faced with the person of truth. He was faced with Jesus Christ himself, and so when he turned and walked away, he walked away and turned from the light. John 3, 21 says, He that doeth truth cometh to the light. Isn't that interesting? He that doeth truth, it's an active word. He that doeth truth comes to the light that his deeds may be made manifest. The lack of this young man was manifest by the light of of Jesus Christ. The word of God disclosed his want of grace, and I say it over and again, the Bible is not here to flatter us. In fact, there's times I walk away from it and I have to ask God's forgiveness. I have to ask him to help me because it gives us facts that he is calling us to walk in the light of. Oswald Chambers, one of the great uh, minds of another era, he said, no one is lost because they are sinners. He says, rather they're lost because light has come and they chose darkness over light. And Jesus is the light of the world. And when he walked away, Jesus did not denounce this young man. He just disclosed his lack. And by the way, that's the first approach Jesus always makes with all of us. It's what we call prevenient grace. It's not a word we use often except in the realm of the church. Probably Wesley was a strong proponent of the prevenient grace. Prevenient grace is always God going before. I had not enough sense to seek God till he put within me the urge to pursue him. God is always previous. 
You just don't make up your mind, I'm going to seek God in there, out of your own head. If you do, it's because God has put something in you to draw him to yourself. No man comes to the Father but through the person of Jesus Christ. Prevenient grace. Uh, there's so much I think needs to be understood. When Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to leave you comfortless when he was crucified and rose back to the Father. He said to those disciples, and he says to you, me tonight, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to send another comforter unto you. Oh, by the way, that other comforter is even more magnanimous than Christ when he walked on the earth because Christ was constrained to time and space. The Holy Spirit is not constrained by those boundaries. He can be anywhere at all times, any place. And so we have access to the Holy Spirit. And he said, when he has come... He's going to reprove or convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to the Father, of judgment because the prince of this world should be judged. When he said he's going to reprove us or convince us or convict us, no man ever comes to God until that happens. And he is constantly doing that for you and me. He did it for this young man. He disclosed his lack, and it made the young man sad. He was very grievous. He walked away. But I learned a long time ago, the gospel oftentimes shares with us bad news before we ever get the good news. You don't seek a doctor until you need him. D.L. Moody said you've got to get a man lost before you can ever get him saved. And one of the problems we have is getting men and women to see their, their dilemma. Am I ready? Am I right? Am I okay? But when God comes, he reveals that to us. He turned away from the light. But he also turned away from life. He asked the question, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life. It seemed to me like he was interested in eternal life. It was the hope of eternal life that moved him to Christ. But when the conditions were disclosed, he walked away. Oh, I think that hinges on the word, what must I do? I got to tell you, it's not what you do. It's what God, you let God do for you. I think it revealed how cheaply some hold the hope of eternal life. I might have mentioned last night, I don't know, but I, I, it was 65 years ago when I came to the knowledge of my need of Christ. And the greatest decision I ever made in my life across those years is that decision on a February night when I surrendered. And it's been a constant growing and developing and learning and the relationship with the person of the Holy One. And I have to tell you, there's not a day goes by that I don't consider life beyond this world. We're made for bigger things in this world. I don't know what it's going to be like one of these days when we leave this world. I've tried to imagine it in, in, in the context of the scripture. All I know is I'm going to be amongst those who's going to come from the east and the west and the north and the south. I'm going to make my way to that celestial city and I'm going to be greeted by one who's going to touch me with a touch of immortality and take the wrinkles out of our faces and take the limp out of our legs and the blindness out of our eyes and the deafness out of our ear. He's going to roll back the years and make us young forever and we're going to enjoy that forevermore. Who would want to miss that? 
That's what this young man was talking about. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And it revealed to him, apparently it wasn't all that important because Jesus looked at him and hear these words. One thing you lack. Doesn't seem like much, does it? One thing lackest thou, and yet he turned and walked away. I've seen that happen. Let me ask you a question. I'm not asking, I'm preaching to the choir here, I'm sure, but what one thing would be worth forfeiting eternal life for? What one thing can you think of in your mind that you would rather have than eternal life? What one desire, what one gratification, what one grudge, what one possession, what one thing is worth more than the crown of life? I've never found anything in this world I wanted more than that. Paul was an example of that. In fact, he being the great student that he was and the great scholar in the Pharisee and he who was high up in the hierarchy of the Judaizers' religion and yet when he met Jesus Christ, he said, I counted all but dung, all but refuse that I may know him. And from that moment on, he did nothing but know Jesus and went all over the Mediterranean area preaching the gospel and writing 13 of the New Testament letters. And when he came down to the end, he said, the time of my departure is at hand. In other words, he was simply saying, the word departure literally means when the old soldiers take off the combat boots and they lay down all the armor and the weapons and they put on their dress clothes. The time of my departure is at hand. I've fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. That's, that was worth it all. He turned not only away from light and life, he turned away from love. Jesus, beholding him, loved him. You know, I don't like to go into these things, but there's, there, we only have one word for love in English language, and so we use it for everything, love. The original language of the Greek, they have three other words, phileo, where you get the word Philadelphia, it's a that's supposed to be the city of brotherly love. That's kind of a brotherly love type. There's sort of a, an erotic love, eros. But this is the agape, the self-sacrificial nature of God, this love. Jesus, beholding him, loved him. Now, there's a phrase we use all the time. Well, his love is unconditional. Well, it is. I'm glad that it is, but the fact of the matter is, while his love is unconditional, salvation is not unconditional. He loved this young man, and he loved him and gave him light and gave him life, offered him life, and he walked away. And when he walked away, he made the wrong decision because salvation is not unconditional. You remember the time that Jesus was with his disciples And it was about this time of the year, and he said to them, except you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no life in you. I think it's about the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. Except you eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. And the words he was speaking, they were spirit and they were life. And yet the disciples, literally disciples, not the world, the disciples heard that and said, that's a hard saying. That's a hard saying. And said they turned, disciples turned, and walked with him no more. 
I can hear the pathos in Jesus' voice when he looks at the rest of them. And he said, will you also go away? Will you go away also? And Peter, he was always the spokesman. Peter said, go? Where shall we go? You have the keys of eternal life. There's no place else. But this young man turned and walked away. I've often wondered, where did he go? Back to his well, back to his knowledge, back to his pleasure? I don't know. But Jesus never offered a compromise. Jesus didn't watch that young man walk away and say, well, come on back, come on back. Let's do a little negotiating now. Let's see what we can come to up with, what resolve we can make. No, no. When he walked away, his case was closed forever. Jesus had loved him, but he lost him. By the way, there are some scholars who will tell you this is the same man you will find over in Luke 16 where the rich man lifted up his eyes in torments and cried out, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to warn my brothers, five brothers, not to come to this awful place. He loved him, but he lost him. While the tragic failure is marked on the monument where he fills his Christless grave, misspent life, misplaced love has become the ravens of regret that haunts his dungeon of despair. Walked away. It's an interesting story and there's so many things that we're missing that time does not permit. But let me just say to you, behind him, walked away, Behind him now is the Christ, the cross, and the crown. What's he got to look forward to? Ahead of him is the dark, the death, and the damned. We must be careful not to delay in turning away from the truth. Just share this. I, I close. I remember some years ago finding this, and it was very intriguing, and I think insightful about this young man. We're not told his name, the rich young ruler who sought the Lord that day. We only know that he had great possessions and that he walked away. He went away from joy and peace and power, from love as yet untold from that eternal life that he was seeking back to his paltry gold. He went away, he kept his earthly treasure, but oh, what a cost. Afraid to take the cross and lose his riches and God in heaven were lost. So from tinsel bonds that held and drew him, what honor he let slip. He could have been comrade of John and Paul and friend of Jesus. What glorious fellowship. For they who left their all to follow Jesus have found a deathless fame. On his immortal scroll of saints and martyrs, God wrote each shiny name. We should have found this young man's name there, the rich young ruler, if he would have stayed that day. Nameless, though Jesus loved him, ever nameless, because he walked away. You know, uh, I don't want to not only walk away from Jesus, 
but I want my name written in the palm of his hand. That's what he does with us. And there comes a time in each one of our lives, like this rich young ruler, that we are called to make a decision. What will I do? Whatever usurps the place of God, it can be as small as it can be, it can be large, it doesn't make any difference, whatever usurps the place of God and seeks preeminence over his rulership in our lives becomes the God that you serve. I'm glad that I met him. I have only one regret that I don't know how to brag on him enough. I wish I could. But I challenge you, don't ever walk away from the truth. He's the truth. He's the truth. John tells us, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word was made flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by the Lord Jesus Christ. When you go through these next couple of weeks, I think it's three weeks from yesterday that we have Easter. <clears throat> when you go through Easter, I, I, I would challenge you to do what I always do because I need to do it, and I never get tired of doing it. Go through what we call the Passion Week, the Sunday before, which is Palm Sunday. Walk with Jesus through the pages of this Bible and see every day what he does. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, you won't find anything Wednesday because there's nothing recorded. I think he was resting on Wednesday to get ready for Monday, Thursday, we call it, when he was going to go into the Gethsemane garden and sweat as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And then, of course, Friday when they crucified him. And when he was silent in the grave on Saturday and then Sunday morning, that first resurrection day when he came out of the tomb, he's alive forevermore. Don't ever turn away from the truth. He's the truth. Do you stand with me?